0: listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, 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 and thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. So very, very much to talk about this hour. We're going to talk about Queen Street street streetcars out of commission. Why? Who knows? Is it Bombardier's fault? Whose fault is this? And why do we have these things? Why do we continue to persist in putting streetcars on major thoroughfares with cars trying to compete? Pass on the right-hand side. We're going to talk about that and ask some tough questions about streetcars and this city. Also straight ahead, I'm going to break down what Andrew Shear had to say just a couple of minutes ago in Ottawa as he named his shadow cabinet and took some pretty tough questions, some pretty icy questions about his possible future and how can he stay on as leader of the Conservative Party. Plus, protecting our parents and elderly relatives. Sometimes, nursing homes have to force elderly couples apart. It is devastating and it happens more than you might think in this province. If you think there should be a law against that kind of thing, well, the NDP MPP, Catherine... Fife has a law proposed, and she will join us a little later on in the program. But we begin with this. $20 million to fight human trafficking in Ontario. The government announcing this this morning, saying the money is part of a new strategy to combat human human trafficking. The government also says that two-thirds of Canada's police-reported human trafficking violations now happen in this province of Ontario. But this ad-lib this morning from the province of Ontario is problematic. Here is Doug Ford. And I'm going to go off script for a second,
1: but once they get in front of the judicial system, the message to the judges, these people need to be put away and throw away the keys. This is disgusting, uh, what what they're doing to our young people. And it shouldn't be tolerated, and the judges shouldn't be tolerating it either. Rather than give them a slap on the wrist and letting them back out, they need to be thrown in jail and throw away the keys. It's It's absolutely disgusting.
0: That is Doug Ford speaking this morning about human traffickers who appear before judges. Now, I understand, and I think I can appreciate, I think we can all appreciate Doug Ford's intent here, and what he is saying, the meaning of this, his disgust with this. I think we can all share that. But Doug Ford is not just speaking as an average citizen. Doug Ford is the leader of this province. And I will remind the premier that the very backbone of our free and open and democratic society is an unfettered judiciary. And you cannot have politicians instructing judges about sentencing. You know what we have for that? We have a criminal code. It is called the rule of law. This is important, folks. Folks. And I understand, again, the intent of the premier here, but that is not helpful, and it is not the first time the, the premier of this province has waded into the judiciary and said, judges should do this or judges should do that. That is a slippery slope and should be avoided. Let's move to Andrew sheer shall we? And Andrew Shear speaking this morning, all about his new cabinet, his new shadow cabinet. And the first question, as he, you know, this is what happens is you You show up in the nice paneled room and you stand there and you make your speech and you've you know you've you've shopped it, you've worked it out with your director of communications. You at least your interim director because you just fired your director of communications if you're Andrew Shear. And then when you're done, the first question comes, and it's it's pointed and it's cold.
2: How can you move forward
3: with all these knives in your back?
4: Uh, I am staying on to fight the fight that Canadians elected us to do. Uh, there are very serious risks facing this country, and Canadians expect us to stay united and stay focused on the job at hand, and that's precisely what I'm going to do.
0: That is Andrew Scheer. No, I'm not going nowhere. And those knives that you see protruding from my back? I do not feel a thing. Now, when it comes to asking questions in this kind of situation, it's a free-for-all, you see. So the reporters are all there. They're all shouting their questions, trying to get your question in. And I'll tell you, in my experience, I've done this for many years, it's helpful to have a voice that cuts through. Now, I have a lot, you know, kind of a deep... You know, baritone. So I can I can and I got power. So I can overwhelm a lot of other people. But here's what I can't do is sometimes if you have a voice and there's been a number of reporters, I there's the Badger who is legendary, Richard Brennan from Toronto Star was legendary at Queen's Park and on Parliament Hill because he had this sort of higher-toned voice so that when he asked a question, it just cut through. It just it just eliminated the baritone voices like mine. And Marika Walsh from the Globe and Mail has kind of a similar voice. Listen to her here as she manages to get her question in and cut right through as she asks a very pointed question about, well, what level of support, Mr. Shear, do you think you need in April to be able to keep
4: this job?
1: What support do you need confiance
2: en vous? In order to stay on as leader.
4: I am staying on as leader. I am fighting the fight that we need to fight on behalf That's of the Canadians.
2: Percent like Harper said? I
4: am staying on to fight the fight the Canadians elected us to do. Now is not the time for internal divisions or internal party politics. That is an unfortunate part of the uh, Conservative tradition in this country, uh, but it's essential that but we stay is it? Is it focused on task at hand. So I will be making the case uh, to our members uh, that we need to stay united and stay focused, and I will be seeking a mandate to do that in April. <laughs>
0: That is Andrew Scheer, answering some very pointed questions this morning about what percentage do you need to stay on? Because that's going to be the thing that happens in April. He says he wants to stay. He's going to have to face that leadership review. And so what's your number? 60? 80? 51? Is that all it's going to take? And, of course, Mr. Shearer wisely just skates around that. But you can hear how Ms. Walsh, who is a fierce reporter, uh, and just just great at that is able to just kind of cut through and say, "Well, here's the question." You may remember that she was the reporter that recently asked Mr. Shearer if he thought homosexuality was a sin, and then just kept right on asking him again and again and again as he skated away from it. And I think Mr. Shearer would do a lot. Of help for himself if he would just simply answer the question correctly. Now, one of the things that happened that one of the announcements this morning from Mr. Shear was the announcement of a new deputy, Leona Alesev, who is a floor crosser, you may recall, who has was a liberal and now is a progressive conservative. And listen to this logic here from Andrew Shear when he's asked, Well, wait, now hold on. Don't you have I don't know, like some long-serving caucus members that would be more, I don't know, deserving? You're going to put the floor crosser in? Why are you doing that, Andy?
3: You have a lot of people in your caucus who've served as MPs for a very long time, and with respect to Ms Alice she crossed the floor what message are you sending to the folks who've been with you in, in, the,
4: in the grit from the get-go and not putting them next to your side Well this is all about moving forward. Uh, Leona embodies exactly the type of person that we are trying to reach out to to show that you if you have voted liberal in the past if you are disappointed with the government that Justin Trudeau has been providing Canadians there is a place for you in the Conservative Party of Canada
0: We, we are looking for Judas's If you got anybody if you if you if you like betrayal, then this is the party for you. If you've started out on one path and have decided to just completely abandon all of your friends and your colleagues and your supporters, then come come over here to the Conservative Party. I don't follow that logic exactly, Mr. Sheer. Here's something that's really interesting, and I'm just going to wrap up with this because there's some new research out there from Angus Reid. And Angus Reid asked people if they were likely to believe a pro-life political leader when he or she said they would not touch the issue of abortion if elected. Of course you know that this is precisely the thing that Mr. Shear says like well yeah of course I'm you know sure I'm I'm against it but I won't do a thing about it. So what do people in this country Think about that. Would they believe that? Well, only one-third, just 32%, according to Angus Reid, say they would actually trust a leader at their word on that. You don't think that's a problem for Andrew Shear? That's a problem for Andrew Shear. The study also showed, and I thought this was fascinating, that Canadians were aware of the faith and personal beliefs of conservative leader Andrew Scheer as a Catholic, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh as an Orthodox Sikh. However, twice as many report that Sheer's religion has a negative impact on their views of him than Singh. So 51% of people responding to this poll said, yeah, Sheer's Catholicism is a problem. Only 24% said the same thing of Jagmeet Singh. Welcome back. Just watching what's happening at Queen's Park right now. A little development just happening just as uh, the ministers were leaving the House. And Greg Rickford, who is the Minister of Energy for the minister, uh, for the province of Ontario, has recently gotten himself into a little bit of trouble because he quoted from a website, from a publication rather, that is a climate change denier. And so he came out. And normally what happens is the, the ministers come out and they talk for a while. They answer questions. Well, he just came out and all he had to say is the following. He was stood there and he, oh, he said this and this only, quote, I believe in climate change and I believe it is a consequence of human activity. Thank you, unquote, and then leaves and just walks out. And I, I'm thinking maybe put that on a sticker. Get that on a sticker somewhere, would you? I mean, like a sticker that doesn't stick. That'd be a good idea. You know, it's a situation that many couples across this nation face. When one senior needs more care than the other, they often have to be separated by a long-term care system that simply is not built to handle varying needs of couples. And there are no statistics. On how many couples are actually separated by the health care system in this country, but examples are not difficult to find, especially in this province, like Patricia and Don Dayton. The couple married for 64 years but had to be apart because Patricia needs long term care, and Don lives in a retirement residence. Or in Saint Catherine's, where Carl and Anne Petty were separated, they're finally together again. But they had to live apart for years in different long-term care homes. Carl and his wife Anne now planning to spend the rest of their lives together, living at the Garden City Manor Long-Term Care Home. Ontario actually passed a regulation on January 1st of 2018 that required every long-term care home to have at least two beds for spouses. But critics say it simply has not been enough to meet the demand. NDP MPP Catherine Fife has now tabled Bill 153. It is a private member's bill. It's a long-term care homes amendment act. It's called Two Till Death Do Us Part Act. And it would enshrine the right for spouses to live together in a nursing home. And Catherine Fife joins me on the phone. Welcome to the program.
1: Good
3: afternoon, Alan.
0: Why do we need this if we already have a regulation that was passed in
4: 2018?
3: Well, I think that, uh, you know, the vast majority of MPPs here at Queen's Park have had to deal with uh, case management in our ridings where couples have not had the option to stay together. So what this piece of legislation will do, will it, it will amend the Long-Term Care Homes Act to provide spouses with the right to live together in a home. It also amends the Residence Bill of Rights, which is set out in Section 3 by adding the right of residence not to be separated. And so what the goal of this piece of legislation is, is one is to honor, you know, the Dayton's that you referenced in your opening comments, where I as an MPP was not able, despite, uh, you know, months, if not years of effort to try to get the couple together. Uh, And so that was an eye-opening sort of experience for me because it identified two major issues in our system is that, you know, when one spouse, uh, you know, not all spouses age, at the same time. And so sometimes spouses have differing health needs. One person needs long-term care while the other does not. And then there's a desperate scarcity of beds and long-term care. And so this is a this, this bill, I hope, uh, if it receives the support from the government, will accelerate one, the long-term care investment that needs to happen in Ontario, but also will enshrine those rights of, of residents. So So it's not made optional. And I'm not saying that homes like look to keep spouses apart but it it's not part of the residence Bill of Rights right now so let's let's agree all of us in this house at Queens Park should agree that spouses who have been married 40 50 60 years should be able to live out their the last years of their lives together and it and and also you know come to the conclusion that it is cruel to separate uh, couples who have been married for so long and uh, you know when when I I was going through the issue with Don Dayton and, and his wife, you know, he, he, his daughters brought him into my office, and, you know, he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, you know, I took an oath to, to live uh, and to honor the marriage and to live together until death do us part. And I think that, you know, if we can all agree that that's the goal, then let's put some measures in place to make sure that it's actually a reality in Ontario.
0: I'm speaking with Catherine Fife, who is an Ontario NDP MPP, who has tabled a private member's bill. And Catherine, I began this program by talking about the difference between intent and real world ramifications. And I was talking about the premier and his suggestion that we should lock up and throw away the key uh, human traffickers. In this particular case, I think we can all agree that, yes, the intent of your bill is something to support, but the money and the actual logistics for long-term care homes to carry this out are very complicated.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not suggesting that there's a simple solution here, and nor am I saying that there's one cookie, you know, cutter version of what we should be, you know, applying. But I can make a very, you know, economically sound uh, uh, argument for investing in long-term care and, I, and I'll give you an example you know we have in our hospital system I mean hallway medicine is a reality in Ontario if you've been in a hospital recently you will see overcrowded hospitals and and this is a result of underfunding frozen budgets and not addressing with it, not addressing a health priority with an aging demographic in Ontario and it costs uh, it costs between 500 and 1,500 dollars to keep a senior in a hospital bed, in where where perhaps they have dementia, perhaps they need you know as supportive care, and because there are no options for them to either go to a facility or even receive truly supportive home care, and so why not you know why not accelerate the investment into long-term care? The financial accountability officer, an independent officer of the legislature, as you know, Alan, has come and said, listen, today there are about 35,000 people on a wait list for long-term care. And despite the government's you know, promise to build 15,000, we still will have wait lists. And that, the wait list for long-term care is a barrier to having, the reali- having spousal reunification realized.
0: But isn't this the problem with your private members, Bill, is that at the end of the day, it's dollars and cents, and the money's not there. I mean, what kind of investment... Do you think it's going to require to be able to uphold legislation that you're proposing?
3: Well, what I'm saying is that right now, by not taking action, that this is costing the healthcare system hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, that was confirmed in the in one of the auditor general's reports, I think, from 2016. Is that you know we we are reacting to a crisis by not addressing the core issues in healthcare, and and the the you know we need to be thinking of assisted living, of creating dementia units. In, in, our, in our care campuses, and that should be the vision for Ontario. And I hope that this, this private members bill will prompt this government to fully embrace the concept that one, if you, if you embed the principle that spouses should not be separated in their last years of their lives, and if we agree on that, then let's look at care campuses where you have retirement on the same campus, uh, dementia units, assisted living, long-term care, because co-location has been proven when spouses you know, are together that uh, that improves their overall health. When we all have anecdotal stories of when spouses are separated, that they decline very quickly. So, I mean, December 12th, the debate will happen, the government will say we don't have the money. and. And I'll be pointing to tangible resources that that they actually do have and that, you know, from an economic perspective, this makes sense, but also from a long-term care, health care dollar sense, $60 billion is a lot of money. Let's make sure all those dollars are going to the people that we serve.
0: Catherine Fife is in Ontario, NDP MPP, and join me on the program. Catherine, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much.
3: Thanks so much for your time, Alan. Take care.
0: It is an interesting thing. I think we can all agree that elderly couples who have been married for a long time should not be separated, but uh, you heard Ms. Fife talk about how complicated it would be, and you also heard Ms. Fife talk about the reality of what the response from the government will be, and I'll give you another reality check. A private member's bill is a long shot, always a long shot. It's a long shot when it comes from the government benches, let alone the opposition benches, because the government is loath to adopt anything that it might embarrass itself. So it's much going to prefer putting its own legislation in and say, well, we did this and not give the credit to the opposition. It's unlikely that that private member's bill will go very far, but it will be interesting to hear the debate. An absolute tragedy is unfolding in Kingston right now. Just an update from Kingston police who have now confirmed that seven, seven people are dead, including two children after a small aircraft crashed in Kingston. Now, police were made aware of a missing airplane around 5 p.m. Wednesday night, and that prompted a search in a wooded area of Kingston, West End, and the down plane has now been found in a wooded area north of Creekford Road, about two kilometers west of Bay Ridge Drive. For those who know the Kingston area, here's Craig Krause with more. Detective Joel Fisher with the Kingston Police says they have located the plane in a heavily wooded area two kilometers west of Bay Ridge Drive and north of Creekford Road. Fisher says police were made aware that a small aircraft had gone missing just after 5 p.m. on Wednesday. And, of course, we had heavy rain last night. It was in clement conditions. That is a developing story. Seven dead, including two children in Kingston. The TTC has now pulled all of the streetcars from Queen Street because of braking issues and has replaced all of those streetcars with buses. Now, it takes about three buses to replace one streetcar. So, according to the TTC, it is going to be very very busy during the afternoon rush because no streetcars and then we got all those buses all trying to, you know, vie for road space. Here is TTC spokesman Stuart Green with more about those streetcars and the issues with them.
4: We uh, uh, had
3: some reports of damage to a, a supplementary brake system, the emergency braking system, that sits quite low in the wheel well of the, uh, the new streetcars. Um, and on investigation, we found three of those, and then uh, we did a, a bit of a deeper dive and found four more. So we had seven out of service. And then overnight last night into this morning, uh, we brought that number to
0: 25. Okay, so what is going on with these? These are the new streetcars from Bombardier. Is it a Bombardier issue? What's wrong here? Well, according to the TTC, they had no choice. That once, as soon as they found that, they had to yard them all.
4: What we were finding was that the, the, you know the,
3: that metal bar that sits in the in the, uh, the uh, part of the emergency brake system uh, was actually getting uh, severely damaged and in a couple of cases got knocked off. So there was a very real risk that you know it could have caused a derailment or something serious. So uh, that's why we suspended service until uh, we determined that it's safe to resume service on the street cars.
0: That is TTC spokesperson Stuart Green talking about why all of the streetcars have now been pulled off of Queen Street and replaced with buses. So, what was the experience for commuters? Well, Global News was out super early to talk to commuters about what, so, is it that much worse with buses?
3: It was actually the same. There was really no difference, so it wasn't a big hassle.
4: Yeah, okay. And, and you're okay for the foreseeable future? Uh, sure. Okay. It is
3: what it is. You just do your best.
0: It is what it is. No big hassle. Now, keep in mind, that was early this morning before the real gut of the rush hour. The experience in the gut of the rush hour might be a little bit difficult, or different, rather, and it may be different this afternoon. But it does sort kind of raise the question about, well, now, on Queen Street... If I know this for a fact because I live in the beaches. If I want to go downtown, and I've actually done this before, if I want to go downtown, I can either get on the Queen Street car or I can get on my longboard and just skate into the middle of the city and I'm going to be there faster almost every single time on a skateboard. I'm a man in his 50s on a skateboard. I look ludicrous going down the street, but I still get there faster. So I, I raised this question today. I put this on Twitter. I asked, and I openly asked this question. Why is it the city still has streetcars? Why do we need these things? I understand on St. Clair, where you have a dedicated right-of-way, that makes sense to me. King Street, that makes sense to me, where you have restricted traffic. But look at the opposition that this, you know, the retailers put up to that. So it seems like we can't seem to do that. We So we still have this hybrid system with these streetcars clogging up the road, and every time somebody wants to turn left, well, the streetcar just waits. Let we'll us wait here. So I asked this question on Twitter. Do we still need streetcars? And, man, did it light up. A. Carter Global is my Twitter. If you happen to be on the tube thing, you know, the series of tubes, whether it's Twitter or Instagram, But I asked this on Twitter, and here are some of the uh, responses. Sean McAuliffe, who is a writer uh, for the Toronto Star, also an author, he responded that streetcars carry more people than buses, are infinitely smoother and more humane than buses. Anthony Farnell, the meteorologist at Global News, responded because sometimes it's good to preserve the things that make your city special and unique, even if it is not the most cost-efficient or effective. I wonder if you agree with that, that the streetcar is just simply part of the landscape of Toronto, and we're not going to get rid of it. That is what the city is. Whether it's slow traffic or not, whether it's the most efficient way or not, we're keeping them. Kevin Gaudet is the former head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and a conservative candidate in a number of elections. He responded, why do we still have streetcars? Because local politicians are too weak and timid to make tough decisions. So that the, there's just not the will there to do one of two things, which is admit that having a streetcar on a road like Queen Street is problematic and... You know, we either do one of two things. We get rid of them, we tear them up, tear up the tracks, get rid of it all together, or we make a a dedicated line so that it is, you know, the streetcars don't have to stop there because, you know, somebody's making a, a lefty, a Louie, tying up traffic. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Let me know. A. Carter Global or Alan Carter Anchor on the Insta, on the Gram, as it were. I want to get you updated on some breaking and developing news. As police search for a suspect vehicle, they're looking for a black SUV after a fatal hit-and-run incident. But Toronto police say a woman is dead after a hit-and-run in the city's north end. Happened just after 6.30 this morning when an elderly woman was crossing the street. She was found without vital signs at the scene. Investigators say the suspect vehicle fled the scene after the crash. They say the vehicle involved, again, a black SUV. It may have front-end damage to its headlamp, and police are asking for your help. If you happen to be been in the area, you happen to have dashboard footage, check it. Here's more.
4: We have information that the vehicle uh, failed to remain and continued northbound on Islington Avenue uh, from this location. We don't have any... Uh identifiers in regards to the vehicle other than that uh, there we believe that there's front end damage uh, particularly a headlamp uh, located at the scene
0: that is sergeant jason Kraft of the toronto police talking about the search for the suspect vehicle if you saw anything please contact police we have to solve this it is just an absolute terrible tragedy our catherine mcdonald is working on this story for us, and we'll have more tonight on Global News and on Global News Radio throughout the course of the day. Akimelu is not happy with the apology from the Calgary Flames head coach Bill Peters. Bill Peters issuing that apology for a racial slur he allegedly used when both were in the minors ten years ago. The former NHL player released his own statement today on Twitter, saying that he found Peter's statement to be quote misleading, insincere, and, and concerning. Alou says he has accepted an invitation now from the NHL to discuss the situation and at this point won't make any more comments until that meeting. Peters issued a letter last night to a number of media outlets apologizing to the Calgary Flames and to the general manager of the Flames, but the letter did not mention Alou. In that letter, Peters said he used, quote, offensive language in a professional setting a decade ago, and he called it an isolated an immediately regrettable incident. I want to take this away from that particular incident and ask more questions about hockey and about whether or not hockey as a sport and as a culture has reached a tipping point, and we have two guests on that today. Laura Hensley is a global journalist who is writing about this for Global News Online today, and Courtney Sito is an assistant professor of kinesiology and health studies at Queen's University who is... Studied the culture of hockey and knows a lot about this. Welcome to you both.
2: Hey, Alan, having me.
0: So let's begin with the culture. And Dr. Sito, I will begin with you and what the culture is in the locker room in hockey and whether or not this is a time to maybe shine some light and change behaviors.
2: Um, I think. I mean, it's hopeful that this is a tipping point, but I'm not going to hold my breath because we've had many incidents like these, unfortunately, come out in the news um, over many years. So I'm not entirely sure uh, what might make this one instance any different from any of the rest. But yeah, this is, these are longstanding issues within hockey. And unfortunately, it is a culture that um, hates change, uh, is very reluctant to change, and, and tends to drag its heels. More than any of the other men's professional sports leagues, and the fact that we have never had a, an out-gay player is one of those indications that it is um, not, not in the place that we would like it to be, or a lot of people would like it to be. So I'll give you an example. I organized a, a roundtable on racism and hockey at Queens earlier this year in March. Um, and I reached out to all the executives from Hockey Canada and the OHL, the CHL, anybody that you thought that should be there, um, and was met with silence, unfortunately. Um, nobody wanted to be part of, of a dis- difficult discussion and the practical ways to move forward. I will give credit to the NHL. They sent Rob Kinsara, a club from Toronto, so we had a sympathetic year there. But otherwise, hockey just doesn't really want to deal with um, the flaws in the game, I think. It just hopes that eventually everything will fix itself.
0: Laura Hensley, I know you're working on a story for this for Global News. What uh, has your research uncovered at this point?
1: Yeah, certainly to the point that, you know, we're made, especially when it comes to no one wanting to speak out. I mean, I spoke to a former hockey player, Brock McGillis. He was a former OHL player, and he came out as gay three years ago. But he said that the ingrained homophobia in hockey was just so painful for him as a, a closeted gay person that he he hit it he really feared that coming out as gay would jeopardize his career which i think just speaks to how the culture can be so toxic and you know he was mentioning to me in our conversation that he felt like he had to be macho hypermasculine like all these negative locker talk associations we hear about were really real for him and it had such severe consequences on him mentally
0: Former NHL player Daniel Carcillo alleges that he was verbally abused by ex-Los Angeles Kings head coach Daryl Suttler during the 2013-2014 season. And now Carcillo played 12 seasons in the NHL and spoke with Global News. Global News has reached out to former teammates of his, but we have not independently verified any of these allegations. But I want to play for you now. This is Carcillo talking about the abusive words used in the locker room, and how pervasive it is
4: those words get tossed around in the hockey community way too often, you know, and uh, and I'm guilty of it. There's lots of other people that are guilty of it. I just don't think that they own up to it.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Courtney Sito from Queen's University and Laura Hensley, a global news journalist. and And Dr. Sito, is this? overt racism and homophobia or is it just a culture that is sort of rooted in almost a 1950s military style you know we are just going to you know we're going to drill this into you we're going to haze you and we will not brook any kind of dissent or any kind of individuality.
2: Uh, it's kind of both, really. Um, <clears throat> sport in particular is about kind of teaching deference to authority and, and falling in line. Hockey certainly takes that to another extreme sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I think that the qualities that, we're, that are circulating in the media right now are actually qualities that hockey has hung its hat on for a long time to say this is a man's sport and, and this is what we kind of love about it. Um, but we're getting to the point where, particularly with social media and things like the Players' Tribune, where players are empowered to, um, to speak their truth and have a uh, collective Uh, support behind them. Um, Players are feeling safer to say that this is not okay, that this is not tolerable anymore.
0: Uh, Laura, Courtney was saying that she's perhaps a little bit pessimistic that this truly is a tipping point, even though there are some signs that it may be that. What does your investigation show?
1: Certainly. So I've been speaking to several experts, you know, former players and also people who study race and sports. And, you know, the consensus is, hopeful that this is at least a point in which we're addressing the systemic issues that are so prevalent in hockey but it's also you know we have to be cautiously optimistic because like we've discussed this is something that's been going on for years so yes we're talking about it now I think the firing of Don Cherry really angered a lot of people but it also opened up a space for dialogue you know when the social host Jess Allen mentioned the hockey culture that she found to be so uh, aggressive and detrimental to people's health, you know, people got upset, but it started a conversation. So, you know, hopefully this is a way in which we can address those problematic aspects of hockey culture and come about finding change. I think all the experts are hopeful, but they really do feel that, like like was said, this has been something going on for so many years. So talk is one thing, but action is what's going to need to happen if we want to see change.
0: Laura, Courtney, thank you so much for both being on the program today.
1: Thanks Thanks
0: for having. Interesting conversation and I wonder what you think of it. I I know that this is a sort of thing that really riles people up. And obviously you saw the reaction and and Laura was talking about the reaction to Jess Allen's comments and how angry that made people. I mean, you know people are invested in hockey and I'm not talking about money. I mean, people love the game and they love taking their kids to the rink and it is part of the culture and the fabric of this country. And so when you hear things like what we just talked about, does that anger you or does it prompt you to say, I need to be an agent for change? If I want this sport, if I want this culture to survive, it needs to adapt, it needs to grow, and it needs to be more inclusive. It has been a fascinating hour. I really do appreciate you spending some time with me. I'm back again tomorrow noon. We'll see you